0: Okay, the general epistle of James. Uh, James is a little five-chapter book uh, towards the end of um, the New Testament, the end of the Bible, of course. It's um, uh, right after the book of Hebrews. It is uh, five chapters, much like uh, 1 Peter is five chapters and 1 John is five chapters. And so um, we're looking tonight at James and uh, studying that little five-chapter book. The Apostle Paul wrote most all of his letters to churches. Uh, If he indeed, and I believe he is, as we talked about last week, the author of Hebrews, that was one of his books that was not written to a church. It was written to the early Hebrews, uh, or the Hebrews during the first century, um, before, um, well, after the crucifixion, and it was before Paul if he was the one that wrote it, and I think he was before he was martyred, and certainly before the destruction of Jerusalem, which was at 70 A.D. So, um, But he wrote also to Philemon, but most of his letters were to churches. James, Peter, and John wrote what we call general epistles. They're not to churches. They're to believers, but not to churches. And uh, James, um, his was to a specific group of believers, as we'll see in just a moment, but All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable. And uh, the things that were written aforetime were written for our admonition. So um, even though the book of James, as we'll see in a moment, was written to a specific group of people, it applies to believers, to all Christians, because uh, God's Word certainly applies in in some way to all of us uh, at any time. Even, you know, whether it's Genesis, even some of the things of the law, even though we may not be under the law, some of the truths of the law, you know, we learn from those. So, it's uh, five chapters, and the theme of James is practical Christian living. That's what the book of James is about. There's not any deep doctrine in the book of James. It's pretty much all about practical Christian living. There are a couple of doctrinal issues, maybe, but uh, nothing really deep in there. It was written by the Apostle James. Now, some writers say they believe it was written by Jesus' brother James, but I don't, I, I, the, the things I've read in here and things I've studied, I, I believe it was written by James the Apostle, just as Paul. Later, from the original 12, was an apostle. Uh, John uh, was an apostle. Peter was an apostle. And and so um, James, I believe, was the apostle James. And uh, some of the reasons I believe that, that really makes sense that it would be him, is because it was written really early on. Um, Skip ahead. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting." So right then and there, you'll see that that book is not addressed direct, directly to believers in Jesus Christ as far as you and me. Um, but it is written to the 12 tribes, believers of Israel. So what I'm trying to say is, even though certainly it applies to us because we're believers, it was written specifically to the 12 tribes um, as, as um, the New Testament days and the church age had begun. And so with that in mind, Go back with me to Acts 12 for just a moment in verse number 2. Acts 12 and verse 2, and get a little background. And it's important that we understand that this book was written really early. Now, when this was written, Paul had been saved by that time, but Paul hadn't read any of his letters to the churches yet. He had not written any of them. He didn't write any of those until he began on his first missionary journey. And then more of them were about second missionary journey, but um, he began in his first missionary journey, which was about, you know, mid-50s, late-50s AD. So this will precede Paul's letters by about 15 years roughly, and that's important to understand as we study this. Um, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and and 2 there talk about James, uh, the apostle, how he was um, martyred by Herod. Verse 1, Now about that time Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. He's going to... This is Herod the king... Uh, In in Israel there, the king appointed there by Rome's government, he was going to bring persecution on the church, which he did more than once, but he was going to bring persecution on the church, on believers. And it says there in verse 2, "...and he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. He beheaded James." Just as John the Baptist was beheaded, uh, James was beheaded by King Herod. James, of course, is the brother of John the Apostle. John, James, and John—they call them the Sons of Thunder. They—they um, um, they were fishermen, and they were sons of a man named Zebedee. Remember, and if you um, if you get to watch any of the the chosen and watch that, it um, gives us some really neat insight on the on those brothers. But at any rate, um, he was. Um, also, some of them call him James the Greater because one of the other apostles named James, they call him James the Less. But this is James, the brother of John. And so he was martyred roughly about 42 to 43 A.D. Um, and then so he wrote right before he was martyred, wrote this letter. Now, while that's important, we'll see as we study this. So it's written to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. What does that mean? Well, the early days, the first number several years of the New Testament church... Remember, Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, uh, and then ascended about 33 A.D. And then Acts chapter 1 talks about His ascension into heaven after 40 days of being on earth. He ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, which roughly 33 A.D. And then over a period of about 10 years, the church began to grow, and most of the church, 99% of the church in the first six to seven chapters of Acts are Jews that believe on Christ and are converted because everything is centered around Jerusalem. Now, there were some, Jew, uh, some Gentiles, of course, that believed, but most all those recorded as they had believed were all Jews. So that's why it's very important when you see that verse, as James writes his book, he's writing to believers that were from those 12 tribes. And another clue it gives, it says they were scattered abroad. Why were they scattered abroad? Because of persecution. Uh, We'll come back to that actually in just a moment and, uh, and reference here in just a moment. But they were scattered. These were, this was written. So it's early written early on. It's written before Paul writes doctrine. So this is why this is important. Written during the first half of the book of Acts. The church was relatively young, only about 10 years or so old. This is not a book to form your doctrine. This book is not written for that purpose. There's a little bit of doctrine in here or there, but it's not a book to form your doctrine, okay? Uh, James and Paul, um, well, let me jump ahead and then we'll come back. Paul had not yet written a letter or book of the New Testament. God's Holy Spirit used Paul to write down the doctrine of the New Testament church. That's why most of the time you'll hear preachers about probably 70% of the time, most pastors will preach from Paul's letters. Not that the rest of us, not all scriptures give my inspiration to God, all right? It's all important. Uh, Old Testament, all the books that we've been studying on Wednesday night, they're all important. But a lot of times they'll preach from Paul's letters because Christians need to be taught and reminded of New Testament doctrine. Paul's the one that nailed that down. He's the one the Holy Spirit had right that. So, back up. When we get to chapter 2, and we'll highlight this in a moment, so you you, you want to write some notes maybe later, but in chapter 2, James says that we're justified by our works. And so, as we'll see in just a moment, there's those that say, well, see, Paul and James contradict because Paul says we're justified by faith, and we are justified by faith, but we're justified by works, but not before men, or excuse me, not before God, before people. And we'll see that when we get to it. But they do not contradict. They complement each other. We'll see that in a moment. Paul defines doctrine in Romans through Philemon. He nails down Bible doctrine. And each of those books that we've studied in the last number of months when we're going through the, the Paul's letters, and so on, we were a lot of our highlights, remember, we talked about very important doctrinal matters, salvation, sanctification, justification, um, these, these words that, that are very important for New Testament doctrine, the doctrine of what the church is all about, right? So all these things. Paul compliments and clarifies James. He does not contradict it. We'll see that when we get to chapter 2 and highlight some verses there. James is not written as, you might want to put in these words, as a gospel tract. Although James talks about salvation in there, that wouldn't be the book that you'd go to if you if you're giving somebody the gospel. You'd go to Romans. You'd go to Romans 3, Romans 4, that talks about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, uh, that talks about we're justified by faith. That's where you go if you were going to use, quote-unquote, a gospel tract from, from some of the books of the Bible and some of other Paul's writings. Not that they contradict, they complement each other. So James writes at a time that New Testament doctrine had not been nailed down yet. And one of the reasons is because at that time, the early church was mostly Gentile. Well, when Paul comes along, uh, he begins preaching and begins serving and ministering and being a missionary evangelist when it's still early, uh, kind of early, but at one point in his ministry, he begins to go strictly to the Gentiles. So then later on, the church is becoming both made up both of Jew and Gentile. We're one in Christ. And he even says in there, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. We're one in Christ spiritually. And so when Paul writes down doctrine, it's once the Gentiles begin to get saved, see, and to the body of Christ. James isn't writing directly to the body of Christ, although we can apply it. He's writing to the 12 tribes where believers have been scattered abroad because of persecution. All right? We'll come back to that thought. James was written for practical Christian living. All right, so it's, adjust, it's, it's addressed to the 12 tribes that were scattered. Let's, let's go back to Acts again, uh, chapter 8, for a moment and look at a couple of places in Acts. This is where, um, um, this is during the time frame when maybe he wrote the book because like we saw, he, he was martyred in the early chapter 12, mentions his martyrdom when he was killed, when he was martyred for his faith by Herod. And so look at chapter 8, verse 1 and Saul later become Paul was consenting unto his death talking about Stephen the verses at the end of chapter 7 where Stephen had been stoned for preaching there to the Pharisees and he was stoned and, and martyred and then it says Saul was consenting unto his he was thinking about Stephen's death he was agreeing with it but he was thinking about it because he saw that man as he died He saw that man die for his faith. And Paul knew there's something different about this guy. But at this time, he continues persecuting the church. And at that time, there was great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad. Isn't that the phrase that James used? That ties that together, see? That helps us understand when James was written. Scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 4, Therefore... They that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Uh, One more, chapter 11 of Acts and verse number 19. Acts 11 and verse 19. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus. That's the island when we talked about Titus. Uh, That's the island there uh, close to where Titus was. And Antioch preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. So uh, notice that only the Jews were receiving the God. So that's the time frame in which James wrote his letter, wrote his epistle of five chapters, and he writes, as it says in James 1, they're scattered abroad. Then right out of the box, chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, well, a little further, we'll see in a moment, he begins to talk about... to, um, he says, uh, uh, brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. That word temptation is a, a big word that's full of a lot of things. It can mean temptation to sin, uh, to do something wrong, to sin. But it also could be the temptation to, you know, throw in the towel and to give up when the pressure comes during persecution. And so he says, don't do that. The trying of your faith is going to work patience. And then later on he tells them in another verse right down the... Um, Uh, A little further, he tells them, the Lord is going to give you a crown for enduring this. He'll give you a crown for this, a martyr's crown that you will receive for enduring these trials. So it's written to the 12 tribes. And I said all that. I know it's a long introduction, but it'll help us to understand. Chapters 1 to 3, faith is tested. Chapter 1 talks about it's tested by enduring temptation. And again, temptation is not always to do, you know, horrible, bad sins, which that's part of it. It's not all only that. It's also temptation to give up, to quit. And so he encourages them in chapter 1, don't throw in the towel, don't quit. The persecution may get very hot at times. Just think about some of these folks, they might have seen their own uh, family, their own kin, their own friends, uh, martyred for their faith, or imprisoned at least for their faith. And so he tells them, don't quit, keep on, uh, endure that. Chapter 2 faith is tested by our attitude towards others. We'll hit a highlight on that in just a little bit. And then chapter three, our faith is tested by controlling our tongue, the words that we say. And so um, chapters one to three, it kind of changes, they kind of cover similar theme of temptation and then it changes gears a little bit in chapter four. Chapter four talks about, well, you could talk, you could say that also has to do with temptation to a degree, but it talks about the battle with worldliness. We'll look a little bit about that in a little bit. And then chapter 5 talks about riches, the second coming, and the power of prayer. And we'll, we'll break those chapters down a little bit, especially chapter 5 in just a moment, to look at a little bit more about that. So he talks about the development of temptation, chapter 1, verse 13 through verse 15. It says this, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now remember I said temptation can include to do something wrong and evil. Well, there's the temptation to quit, you know, to give in during persecution. That was the earlier verses that that are found in chapter 1. But here, he talks about specifically the temptation to give in to our old flesh nature. But every man is tempted, verse 14, when he is drawn away of his own lust. And enticed, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now, the word lust, we always, you know, we usually think of it to mean a sexual type lust, and it's certainly included with that. But lust means a desire, either a wrong desire or a desire for something the wrong way. And so, our examples of this are in Genesis 3. Remember when Eve, when she was tempted by um, the serpent there in the garden, the Bible says she saw that fruit that it was good for food, and that it was desired to make one wise, Um, saw that it was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and desired to make one wise, Genesis 3, verse 6. So she was drawn away. She was enticed, just as James says. James gives us that pattern of how temptation works. One more place real quick is over in the book of Joshua. Joshua. Uh, through the first five, the first five books—Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy—the sixth book is Joshua. And when they um, had had a great victory at Jericho and the walls fell down, after that great victory, um, they were um, they were in a city, and God told them, He said, "Don't take uh, anything out of this. I don't want you taking anything from Jericho. I don't want you to take anything from there." He said. Uh, if you do, then there's going to be a, there's going to be a, a price for it. Well, in Joshua seven, verse twenty and twenty one, the scripture says that there had been they found out there was sin in the camp, and Joshua was to go. God told him go look throughout the the camp of Israel and find out who is responsible for this. There's sin in the camp. Chapter 7, verse 20 and 21 of Joshua. And Achan, that was a man's name, A-C-H-N, A-N, Achan, answered Joshua and said, I indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. Look at the development of temptation that James talked about. I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment. The Bible says when they're drawn away of their own lust and enticed. 200 shekels of silver, a wedge of gold, and 50 shekels weight. Then I coveted them, drawn away of their own lust. That's desire. He coveted them and took them and enticed. And then he did that very thing. He took it. And lust conceived it brings forth death and took them. And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. So, Couple places there in Scripture. There probably, I'm sure there are others too. But you see that development that James talks about. So that's the development of how temptation works, and he he uh, gives that to us in chapter one, Uh, chapter one verse eighteen to twenty five. Give us uh, tell us about the mirror of God's word. Chapter one verse pick up at eighteen. Um. Well. Yeah, we can look at verse 18, but really verse 19. Of his own will begot he us with the word of truth. And that's a, that's just another name for scripture, word of truth, the Bible, that we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, be every man let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Here's our one of our key verses here, verse twenty one. Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness—that means an overabundance of that which is, you know, uh, sin, sinful, that which is ungodly—and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Uh, the Bible says that He um, talks about this. Uh, Jesus gives a parable about the sower and the seed and the soils, and the seed is the word of God. It says in that in that uh, parable, and He sows that. Uh, seed, and then some of it falls on hard ground, but some of it falls on ground that it brings forth fruit. And so it says that the, the Word is able to save our souls. The very, the very Scripture that saves us gives us the direction, the instruction to live a victorious Christian life. And so Peter says, and First Peter we'll see, Lord willing, next week, he, said, he calls it, um, says that we're, we're uh, born again by the Word of truth, by the Word of God. Uh, and so uh, it's able to save our soul. And so because of that, it has the power to save us for eternity. Look what it says in verse number 22. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers. Notice there's not a period there. Not hearers only. Deceiving your own selves. What is he saying? He's not saying don't hear it, of course. He wouldn't be saying that. Romans ten seventeen says faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? the word of God, right? So he's not saying don't be a hearer. He's saying be a, be a doer and don't only be a hearer. Practice, apply what you hear, what you read on your own, what you hear taught or or preached practice. As it applies to you, practice um, uh, and and make it a part of your Christian walk and practice by living and applying it. Be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving your own self. Now, look at verse 23. If any be a hearer of the word and not a doer. So you've got to be a hearer before you can be a doer. But he says, don't just be a hearer and not a doer. He's like unto a man beholding his natural face in the glass. Where he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. You know, you do that for some, you look in the mirror and then, you know, after you're driving or, you know, get where you're going and you don't have a mirror near you at that time, you forget about something there that's there probably. And he says, uh, verse 25, but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. That's another phrase for God's word, for the word of God. And continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul talks about receiving the word, not as it is the word of men, but as it is indeed the word of God, receiving that, which um, he says the uh, the scripture will, will do the job spiritually in our life. It will accomplish what God sent it to do. Um, 2.13, um, because we receive the word of God, you heard it, Heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh in you also that believe. Last week in Hebrews, we looked at chapter 4, verse 12, that uh, the Bible says that it's a two-edged sword. Uh, The word of God is a two-edged sword. It pierces the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joint, joint and marrow. And we talked about last week how the Bible is the only book in the world that when you read it, it's reading you. So James talks about the importance of uh, the mirror of the word in our life. So see, he's, he's all about practical Christian living. Not a lot of doctrine. He's about practical Christian living before Paul wrote about doctrine. Then he talks about pride, prejudice, and partiality in chapter 2, verse 1 to 9. Um, that was a typo. Those two, those two passages don't belong there. That was a leftover from another, uh, from another uh, slide that I had up there. So you can disregard those that were in that earlier slide about, um, temptation. But chapter 2, verse 1 to 9, he says this, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. Then he begins to talk about somebody who comes in, they're very wealthy, and he says, you know, why would you give them the nicest place to sit just because they dress nicer than anybody else? They apparently are wealthy. Um, he says in verse 5, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? So there's a little bit of doctrine there as far as heirs of the kingdom. But what he's saying here, he says, not, you know, don't, don't be partial to someone who has a lot of money and against someone who doesn't have very much. He says, um, he says when you do that, he, he says in verse 4, you're judges of evil thoughts. Now, later, um, later on, as Paul writes his letters, he writes and says, you know, we're one in Christ. And then he says, in the body of Christ, you know, every member is important. Uh, one member suffer, uh, suffers; all members suffer with it. And we need those that seem to be the less desirable members just as much as we need the ones who kind of, uh, you know, are, are in the limelight or well known. So he talks about he talks about the uh, problem there of, of, of pride, of prejudice, and partiality. Um, and he says, um, verse number nine. But if you have respect of persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. So. Uh, as believers in Christ, we should treat everyone uh, that is a Christian as being in Christ. They're in my brother or sister in Christ. doesn't matter where they're from, how old or how young, what nationality, what color of their skin. If they're born again, if they're saved, they're my brother or sister in Christ. They're your brother or sister in Christ. And so there may be things we disagree about, there may be things we, you know, doctrinal issues we may disagree about, but in Christ we're brothers and sisters, and James makes sure we understand that because he's writing about practicality. And in this chapter he's talking about, you know, our, our Christianity, uh, applying it, uh, our faith to um, the way that we treat others. Now we get into the good old faith by works or faith, faith by justification. There are a lot of people, especially lordship people, And um, that that really like to jump on this and and read this and kind of leave it by itself. The Bible says no prophecy of the scripture of any private interpretation. So the key to understanding scripture is compare it with scripture. So in these verses, we don't have time to read the whole section tonight. But when you read verses 14 to 26, I'll I'll highlight a couple of verses. And then we're going to look at some other passages to compare with it. Um, Look at verse 14. Wherefore, my brethren. Uh, Excuse me, what doth it profit, my brethren? Would a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If you were here when Freddie preached a couple of weeks ago, he hit the nail on the head. The word save or saved or salvation actually is less times in the Scripture is talking about eternal salvation than it is other kinds of salvation. There is a salvation where you save somebody's physical life. Many times in the book of, of Psalms, Usually David is writing where he's on the run from Saul or something like that. And, you know, Lord, save me, Lord, spare. He's not talking about saving. He's already been saved eternally for, for eternity. Spare my life is what he's saying. So sometimes the word save or saved means that. Sometimes it means like this. Um, we use this phrase sometimes. In fact, Paul, Paul mentions this in some of his letters or uses it this way in some of his letters. So he'll use the word saved this way. So uh, you're talking to somebody and you're trying to give them some advice or some counsel and you say something similar to this. If you'll take what I'm trying to tell you, you will save yourself some trouble, right? We use that sometimes. You're sparing yourself from some trouble. Um, David said, Lord, spare my life, save me. You save somebody from trouble by giving them good advice. You're sparing them problems that they don't need to have. So the save here is not salvation for eternal life. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about saving our testimony before other people. How do we know that? Let's continue on. Uh, He gives an example here. Uh, Don't have time to read it all, but verse 15 or 16. If you have a brother, somebody you know that needs food, they need clothes, and you tell them, you know, go your way, be warmed and filled, what is that doing? That's not doing anything but giving a bunch of words. That's not putting clothes on their back or food in their stomach to help them with a need they have. You see it here? It's a physical need to be met. Has nothing to do with salvation, does it? All right. Um, Verse 17, one of the the verses people like to jump on. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Put a note, put a pen there. We're going to come back to that in just a couple of verses. Um, Then he says, I'll show you faith by our works. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son upon the altar? Now here's something interesting. Abraham was justified before God before Isaac was even born. How was he justified by God? God said, Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15. I'm going to make your descendants as the sand of the sea, as the stars in the heavens. Do you believe that? Yes, Lord, I believe that. You know what, Abraham, because you believe me, I'm going to give you my very righteousness. So he was saved eternally by believing what God said, and God gave him his righteousness. Then, as we'll see in a minute, Paul says, that's how we're saved. We believe believe on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. See, Abraham was way before that. He believed God. But we are after the cross, and Paul says, when you believe the truth of the gospel, God gives you his righteousness. You are justified. You are declared righteous. So he says, was not Abraham justified by works when he offered up Isaac? He was justified by works in his testimony. He obeyed God to offer up Isaac. It had anything to do with his salvation. He was already saved. Chapter 12, he was saved. This happened later on in chapter number, let's see. Um, I don't have my my reference here. I think it's roughly, oh, 22. 22, when he takes uh, Isaac up to the mount, remember? Mount Moriah chapter twenty two All right, keep on. See thou how by faith with it wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect. not for salvation, but it was made mature because he was now, he was saved. He was living his excuse. Me, he was living his faith before other people didn't do a thing between him and God as far as his salvation. He was already saved, all right? Verse um, 23, the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. All right. So he believed God. God gave him his righteousness because he believed God. But verse 24, see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. What does that mean? Verse 25, likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and had sent them out another way. Here we go. Verse 26, this is matches up with verse 17. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now verse 17 says faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Right? Verse 26 says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. What does that mean? Salvation from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ between us and God, that's right. We're made right, we're declared righteous, we're given the very righteousness of Christ, we're justified before God. But before our fellow man, men, our fellow people, our other Christians, even lost people, the way we live our faith justifies us before others. So, very real way, that's why Paul said it's important the way we live as Christians before the Christians, don't be a stumbling block to your brother or sister in Christ. Don't do something that's going to cause them to stumble spiritually. Why? Because we're, we're, um, we're, we're, as a body, as far as Christians, we're all one body. And we don't want to do something that's going to harm another Christian spiritually. And so our testimony is at stake. Justified before others. You say it's not fair that people judge us. The Bible doesn't say whether it's fair or not. It's just fact. People judge us by the way we live. That's just the way it is. Other Christians judge us. Should they? Whether they should or not, They do. Lost people will judge you by the way you live. Oh, you say you're a Christian, and do that? They watch us. They watch us. So look at verse 30, uh, verse number 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead. Okay, here's you go to a funeral home. We've all done it, you know, back in April with my mom. Did, you go to a funeral home. There's a person you love, you care about. Their body is right there in a casket, right? That body is there. Their spirit and soul, if they're a believer, their spirit and soul wouldn't be with the Lord. But their spirit and soul is not in their body anymore. That's why they're dead. Because it says the, 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 spirit or the body without the spirit is dead, right? Is that body non existent? It's a body. It's still a body. It's not that it's non existent, it's dead. You have a storm and wind blows and you had like recently all these rains and wind blows. You end up with limbs in your yard. Those limbs fell off that tree. They're just as dead as a doornail. They're dead. Are they non-existent? If they were non-existent, you would be picking them up and clearing them out of the yard, would you? They're existent. They're dead. So he says your faith as a believer, as far as God, you're, you're justified before God by, in salvation by trusting in Christ. The way you're justified by others is the way you live. And that's what Paul says here. And he makes it very practical saying, if somebody's in need, help meet that need, and you're living your faith before other people. They see that. Faith without works is dead. It's a true statement, isn't it? Sure it is. But be careful, because it's not salvation faith, because works will not save you. For by grace you save through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. And the next verse says, for the Christian... We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. See? So that 10th verse of Ephesians 2 fits right in there. After you're saved. Until you're saved, those works mean nothing. After you're saved, it's your testimony. It's rewards in the future. at the judgment seat of Christ. Do a lot of them. Don't let this, this, this passage trip you up, folks. Don't let anybody trip you up. If they take you there, if they start talking about eternal salvation and they take you there, you are back back up and say, look, you're in the wrong spot. Let's go over to Romans 4 and talk about it. Let's Let's move on to that. In fact, Romans 4, verse 1. I'm going to get behind just as sure as it's dark outside. Romans 4. we got to move on. I just get really, really... Uh, excited about this. Romans 4, verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father is pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, oh, there it is. He wasn't justified by works. He was before people when he offered up Isaac. But look what it says. Justified by works, where they have the glory, but not before God. See, not before God, before other people, but not before God. Verse 3. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He's quoting from... Uh, Genesis fifteen six. Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. So in other words, if we had to work for our salvation, there wouldn't be any grace to it. We, we, we couldn't work enough. It would be debt. We'd be constantly trying to pay a debt that we can't pay. Verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, justified before God by our faith in Jesus Christ. We're justified by others by living out that faith. So the the, the take home on this is, you know, don't throw out James 2 verse 4, uh, 14 and 26. It's in there for a reason. It's just not salvation passage. It's for once you're saved, then that's, that applies to you. Until somebody's saved, it doesn't apply to them. All right. Whew. Anyway, let's move on. Chapter 3, verse 1 to 18, it uh, talks about the power of the tongue. The tongue is very powerful, both in a good and a bad way. In the book of Proverbs, I didn't, no, I don't think I wrote any references. In Proverbs, it talks about the power of the tongue, how there's health in, a, in the things we say. We can say things that will be a blessing to people. The tongue can be used in a very good way, according to Proverbs, but it also, Proverbs, like James, warns about the wrong use of the tongue. In fact, I, didn't, I don't think I put this in the notes, but some people have called, some, some writers have, have called James, the commentators called James the uh, Proverbs of the New Testament because it is so very practical. And there are a lot of places in James that are very similar to Proverbs, and where he talks about the tongue is one of them. Verse, uh, let's just skip around and look at these verses, verse 3. Uh, Behold, we put bits in horses' mouths that they obey us and turn uh, about their whole body. And he's talking about the power of the tongue and, and giving the example from, from um, nature there, verse 4. Behold, also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. So, uh, especially in that day, they used a lot of wind, you know, for the, um, with sails, but they also had a, what, they, what you call a governor, a little rudder, a governor thing that would guide uh, by turning the, you know, the wheel you've seen in the movies or maybe you've been on one where they, a ship or boat where they've done that. And turns, and just a little bit will turn it, just enough to go completely a different course. That's why they're constantly looking at that compass and looking to to check and see what course they're on. Because just a little bit, James says that the the tongue is like a bit in a horse's mouth. You move it just a little bit, that big huge animal just move that bit a little bit. And it's going to move one way or the other. The 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 governor on a ship, the rudder, it will it will control it. And then in verse six. He uses it in a completely negative way. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. So it can be very destructive. Some of the words uh, that we say can be very, very destructive. So talks about the power of the tongue. Again, he's all about practical Christian living, see? And it has to do, uh, he, he brings it into daily living, the way we live before others, um, you know, treating others more preferential than others, or whether it's our works before others, or hear the tongue. So, he's, he's all about practicality and practical Christian life. Then he talks about how worldliness works, and we'll skip around and look at a few verses. In chapters 4, 1 to 12, uh, from whence, verse 1, "...whence come war and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members?" You lust and have not, you kill and desire to have, cannot obtain. So um, he's not just talking about the members of our body, but he's talking about also when we're corporately together, um, worldliness can work on our fellowship with other people. And then uh, verse 2 has that phrase, the the second half of it, that we really need to remember often about our prayer life. Yet you have not because you ask not. There are probably a lot more things that we could have. I'm not talking about name and claim, but there are a lot more things we could have if we just simply ask and pray. Verse three leads into verse three, talking about our prayer life. Ye ask and receive not, because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. In other words, don't ask for something just because it's a want. So that goes completely against the name and claim it bunch, doesn't it? Um, don't ask it just because it's something you want to have. Um, be very careful of that kind of theology. Then four to ten, verse four to ten, uh, James talks about how worldliness works on our temptation to be proud. Um let's see. Talks about friendship with the world, verse 4 is enmity with God. Uh, res- submit yourself, verse 7, to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Um, verse 10 is what I wanted to see. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Pride and humility are opposites. And so um, when, we're, when, we're, when we're battling with pride in our life, uh, humble yourself before, you know, in the Lord's sight. He will lift you up. He will. Jesus said, He that humbles himself shall be exalted. And so the Lord will lift us up. Uh, Speak not evil one another, brethren. And um, then he goes into uh, verse 11. Let's see. Yeah. Verse 11 to 17, especially 13. uh, The will of God and daily living. So um, which kind of has a little bit to do with worldliness. When we read this here, um, he's still kind of on the same subject. Pick up verse 13. James addresses the problem of leaving the Lord out of our decisions. It's always wise to include the Lord in any decision we're making, uh, whatever it may be, small or great. And here's an example here, verse 13. Go to now, you that say. In other words, he's saying, I'm giving you an example right here. Today or tomorrow we'll go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Now, if that's somebody's job, what's wrong with that? Not a thing. There's nothing in and of itself wrong with that. Uh, If that's their job, if they have to travel for their, their job, for work, that's part of what they do. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But look what James says for the believer, why it's different. Whereas, verse 14, you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. So he says, while you're going about your daily traveling, your job, you know, Earning your money, earning your bread to live by, nothing wrong with that. But while you're doing that, he says, realize one thing, life's a vapor. You could leave to go on that trip for your job and not return back home again. You know, life's a vapor. It's here, and then it's gone quickly. Verse 15, for that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. That's a great verse. That's one I'm trying to to memorize and to, to keep in my mind every day. If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Um, you know, we make our plans and there's nothing wrong with planning at all. But if the Lord will, this is what I plan to do. If he's willing for this, because God can certainly change our plans. As you see in verse 14, our life's a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. Verse 16, but you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So he's saying, don't leave the Lord out of anything that you do. Include him in it. You know, even the most mundane things in life, include him in it. All right, chapter five. Um, This gets to, let's see, we're almost at two, no, we're almost time to close it out. So, chapter five breaks down in three kind of pretty, pretty uh, smooth transitions here in chapter three. Verse one to six, there are warnings to the wealthy uh, and to those that are mistreated uh, in those days. Remember, they had a different class in those days, they didn't have a middle class. You had the the, basically, the, uh, those that were wealthy and those that were slaves, basically, um, is what you had for the most part. Um, and so he talks about to those that, were, that are being you know, mistreated by uh, those that were wealthy. He said, the Lord's going to hear your cry, and he will reward them. Verse number four, um, he says, uh, you hired laborers who have reaped down your fields which is kept back by fraud crieth, and the cries of them which reap are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. In other words, he says, you, um, um, you know, you, if you mistreat those who work for you, God's going God's to gonna, you know, bring that back around to you. Verse 7 to 12 talks about being patient for the Lord's return. So even as early as James' little uh, five-chapter epistle, before Paul even wrote anything about the rapture, James writes something about the Lord's return. Verse 7, be patient, therefore, brethren unto the coming of the Lord. And so verse 7 to 12, he talks about patience for the Lord's return. Uh, with everything going on around them, all the things that were going through persecution, um, he tells them to endure, to keep on keeping on. Verse 13 to 20, he talks about the power of prayer. Now notice, um, again, early uh, ministering to Israel, we talked about this in Acts, when we talked about and broke down Acts and talked about how the early church when it was mostly Jewish, the Jews require a sign. And we talked about healing and all that. Look at verse 13 and 14. This is how you can, or 13 to 15. This is how you can tell. This is early on. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any married? Let him sing psalms. Now, those verses are for any time, not just for um, what we're about to read as far as anointing with oil. Those are for any time. If somebody said, we keep a list of people that are sick. We pray for those that are sick, afflicted or sick. Let him pray. Any merry, let him sing psalms. If you're happy, sing. Whistle, sing. Verse 15, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Now again, it's mostly Jewish. It's the early church, but they're mostly Jewish. The elders of the church, let them pray over him. Nothing wrong with that. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But you have to understand that this is in the time the apostles when they could direct, when they directly did that, and and there was healing as a result of that, verse fifteen, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick; and the Lord shall raise him up. And if you have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Notice the the prayer of faith shall save the sick; eternal life save their life. See, different. That's how saved is used. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. In other words, if he's not right with God, then because of their you know desire to to, to bring the elders in on it and to pray. He said, "Their sins will be forgiven, Um, not in a sense of a priest goes, but apparently this is um, aiming towards those who made it may have there might have been some sickness. Unlike Job, we're talking about on Sunday mornings, sickness that was because of sin." Verse sixteen. Continuing on, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another um, that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That's a great, I know it's a half a verse, but that's a great, great half of a verse. That um, should be a, a regular verse we think about when it comes to prayer. Great, great to memorize. Then it gives example, verse 17, 18 of Elijah. Elias, speaking of Elijah, was a man of like passions, like as we are. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. He's referring back to 1 Kings 17 when there was a time of drought. When Elijah, God told him, there's going to be a drought in the land. Uh, He said, "Um, I'm, I'm going to bring drought. I want my people to get back right with me, and I'm going to bring a drought to them for a period of time. We find out here there's three and a half years, verse 18. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. So James confirms the life of Elijah and the authority of 1 Kings, being one of the books of the Bible, right there, just in those two verses. But he talks about prayer and how Elijah, he was like us. He says, subject to like passions, meaning what? He was, you know, he was made of flesh and blood and bone like we are. He was human like we are. He had his faults and failures like we do. He was human. He made mistakes. Uh, Remember when he got afraid of, he was afraid of Jezebel, he ran for his life. Lord, let me die. He was a man of like passions. But he was a man of prayer. So the underlying lesson there is we may not see the great things Elijah did when we pray, but just because we think about our weaknesses, that should not keep us from praying. Um, we all have weaknesses. If it's sin, confess it before God, but Elijah kept on praying. No matter what, he, he was a man of prayer. Verse 19 and 20. Now these verses tie in, we'll, we'll spend some more time on this, partly because we're out of time, but when we get to 1 John, within the next couple of weeks, we'll spend a little more time on this. In chapter 5 of 1 John, he says, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. So he's talking about someone who is a brother, another Christian, uh, and you help them, they've strayed away from the Lord. Remember when we talked in 2 Timothy about Demas? Too bad Demas didn't have some, and we don't know that they didn't, but The way it ended with what Paul wrote, Demas never got things right with God. But John Mark did, remember that? Uh, Barnabas took him uh, aside and helped him, and he did. But it says, if you err from the truth and one convert him, let him know he which converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. So we'll look at this in 1 John 5, but um, I believe that there is the possibility that a believer in their life can disobey God to the point that God calls them home early. I think I've known some people that God has done that uh, called them home early um, earlier than than they probably uh should have went home. I, only the Lord knows that only he knows our born and death date and everything in between. but I believe it's as we'll see this more in first John, so if, if if you have any questions about that, just hold them and we get to first John we'll look at that a little more okay okay, let's stop there. James ch- five chapters. we made it through. Any questions or input or anything on what we've looked at? Um, yes, ma'am. It's been said that you shouldn't get your doctrine from the Gospels. Is that basically the same thing you're saying about James? That you shouldn't what? You shouldn't get your doctrine. From oh, the Gospels. right, right. Because for one thing, the uh, I mean, there is doctrine in the Gospels, but for one thing, it's you know, except for those last chapter or so in each Gospel, it's all before the crucifixion, and so you when you read Paul's letters, you see that so much of what he writes to the church is, is rooted right there in the death, burial, and resurrection right there. Um, our salvation, justification, um, the, the Holy Spirit come to live within us because Jesus said, I have to go away or the Holy Spirit won't come down. So there is doctrine that we get from the Gospels, but as far as, it'd be like the beginnings of it. And so Paul kind of takes it on further to where it should be for us. And brings it into the letters to the different churches and believers there, like to you know, to especially the Romans, all that several chapters about salvation. And then when you get into um, like Ephesians, he spends a lot of time talking about the doctrine of the church, who we are in Christ, and and um, that as the church we're one body. And then he talks a little bit about gifts and things like that, like in First Corinthians also. So yeah, um, I would say that would be definitely an accurate way to put it. Denise, good point because. Um. Even though James was after the crucifixion and resurrection, um, it was early on where they, you know, they had not begun to spread out and, and Gentiles get saved, and then the body, the body was there. You know, the body of Christ was there. It's just that it was revealed to Paul, even though it was already there. So, um, but good, good point, good question. Anybody else? Okay, Lord willing, we'll go into first, maybe first and second Peter next week. I'm not sure. Um, because actually, there's some places in Second Peter that tie in with Jude, so it may be that we look at First uh, Peter next week by itself. So I'm working on that and trying to figure the best way to go with that. Then you got John, which is five chapters, like James. It's probably going to take a one study. Then you got Second, Third John. So I'm trying to figure how to do those. Those are short books, and so I'm trying to figure how to combine these. What I'm saying. Because then we get to Revelation, of course, that'll be one study. So, all right, anything else? I am really enjoying this. We're coming towards the end of it. There's light at the end of the tunnel, but um, uh, we, we, I'm enjoying it. And I hope you all are. And I've learned so much digging in to find this. And I hope I hope you're learning and growing with it and maybe writing notes. And uh, I'm not sure where we're going after this study. I'm working on some things, but i um, not sure exactly where we're going after this study. But it won't be, probably won't be over a year. So, um uh, uh, unless we went into Acts. We might go into Acts sometime. All right. Well, right. Let's stand and close and, pray and We'll dismiss. Thank you, Lord, for the day you've given us. Thank you for what we're learning in your word. And the very practical book of James, so valuable in the scripture. Uh, when we look at it and we see where it's placed, Lord, in the time it was written, we see um, why certain things were not included as well as things that were included. And we're able to see and understand, Lord, more clearly uh, the practicality of the book of James, of living our Christian life. Uh, before other people, Christians and lost people. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for those practical words, words that were written and born during a time of persecution. And we think of the problems we go through and how discouraging they be, but these folks, with whatever other problems they had, they were on the run. Uh, They had to worship in secret and underground and in houses uh, away from crowds, and uh, some of them were probably going through actual physical persecution at some point. And so, Lord, we we it brings it alive to help us understand more about this book and when and why it was written. pray that you'll watch over us as we leave him here tonight. Help us to be safe as we head home, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.